Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're talking about dead zones. Dead zones that have nothing to do with your cell phone. And stick around after the interview. Research analyst Anita Desikan has some promising news about the Biden-Harris pandemic response. This episode is all about externalities. An externality is a term used in economics. It's when some practice that involves two parties ends up costing or benefiting a third party, when that third party didn't agree to assume that cost or benefit. It's a little like the so-called butterfly effect, or the law of unintended consequences. An example of a positive externality is that if I choose to walk to the store, wearing my mask, of course, congestion from traffic is reduced in my small town. An example of a negative externality is if I choose to take a private helicopter to the grocery store and the wind from the rotor blades blows the roof off my neighbor's house. Today's guest is my colleague, economist Rebecca Baim, who's studying an externality so negative it's created its own dead zone. Her research is on how farming practices in the Midwest can affect the livelihoods of small fishing operations in the Gulf Coast, specifically how nitrogen runoff gets into the water and creates dead zones where marine life can't thrive. But don't worry, we're also going to talk about positive externalities too, like the fact that changes to farming practices could drastically reduce dead zones, and because of that, would basically pay for themselves. Dr. Baim tells us about the threat to traditional ways of life in the Gulf Coast, solutions that can be implemented upstream, and how the real problem is, well, poop. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, so you've been studying the environmental and economic impacts of the Gulf dead zone. And while the term dead zone sounds kind of ominous, I you've got some interesting ideas for, for solutions in there. But let's start just with a definition of dead zone, because we're not talking about a cell phone dead zone here. Right. <laughs> yeah. So a dead zone is an area in ocean water that is devoid of oxygen. So just like humans need oxygen to survive, there needs to be oxygen in ocean water for marine life to be healthy. And, and so a dead zone is an area where this the oxygen levels are very low, and that's resulting from nutrient imbalance, essentially, in the ocean water. And so the one that we focused on in our Reviving the Dead Zone report was the Gulf of Mexico dead zone, um, which is along the southeastern border of the United States. But these, these dead zones, they can be all over the world. They are all over the world. There's one in the Gulf of Oman, in the Arabian Sea, and there are many others. Um, but we focused on the Gulf of Mexico dead zone because it is linked, its fate is linked very closely to um, agricultural production north along the Mississippi River. And it is the second, typically the second largest in the world, but it varies from year to year. So what causes a dead zone? Yeah. So as I said, agriculture is very tied into the fate of the Gulf of Mexico dead zone. So nitrogen is a really important nutrient in agricultural production. It ensures good crop yields and it is used a lot in the Midwest, um, Midwestern corn and grain production. And the way that farmers 
typically grow those crops means that a lot of nitrogen leaves the, the farm and ends up in waterways. And that, that water carries the nitrogen downstream into the Gulf of Mexico. And so I, earlier I said, you know, there's a delicate nutrient balance in, in ocean water, including for nitrogen. So there's a, there's a kind of Goldilocks, a right amount of nitrogen in the Gulf of Mexico that's good for marine life, you know, good for fishermen. But the nitrogen that runs off farms in the Midwest ends up in the Gulf and is the leading contributor to the dead zone. That nitrogen coming down the Mississippi every single year, millions of tons, is what creates the dead zone. With all that excess nitrogen, what actually happens then? Yeah, so once the excess nitrogen finds its way down from the Mississippi River and enters the Gulf of Mexico, it actually produces a lot of algae. Algae is basically plant life, uh, microscopic plant life near the surface of water, ocean water. So the nitrogen actually stimulates more growth of that algae. But then there's something, in this case, there's something called too much of a good thing. So nitrogen is necessary for algae to grow. Algae is what other marine life eat. So it's sort of the beginning of the food chain or the food web in, in the ocean. But too much of a good thing increases the algal growth Bacteria consume the algae and other species. They produce waste, and the waste is what causes oxygen levels to decrease in the Gulf of Mexico. So too much nitrogen, too much algae, too much waste, not enough oxygen is sort of the, the simple way to think about it. It's, it's a pretty complicated process. And so that's really all that nitrogen coming down the Mississippi River is, is fueling that algae growth and causing the, the dead zone. So this sounds to me like it is something that could be reversed. Yes, yes, absolutely. As I said, agriculture is the leading cause of this problem in the dead zone. And so there are changes to agricultural production that could occur that would reduce the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that ends up in waterways. So one of those ways is cover cropping. So when farmers, you know, they're done for the season, they've grown their crops, farmers can leave their their field barren. Planting cover crops, so a, a crop that just holds in the soil and is, is there in the, in the time where the, the main production crop isn't growing, can actually keep nitrogen in the soil and keep it from entering waterways. So you can imagine like in the fall or winter, there's a heavy rain and that field is, is just soil. There's no plant life. Any nitrogen that might have been applied could wash off the farm through erosion and end up in a nearby stream or river. Um, and it also can leach into the groundwater. So, you know, in the Midwest there's, um, and, and all over, there's aquifers under the ground and, and nitrogen can enter those, those aquifers and contaminate groundwater sources. So, so bottom line is we need to do some, we need to shift some of our agricultural practices to keep the nitrogen out of waterways, keep it on the farm if farmers are going to use it. So what impact is the dead zone having for communities on the Gulf Coast? So the dead zone occurs every spring-summer season. Um, so it's not there all year. It disappears for part of the year. But when it is there, it happens to coincide with the shrimp harvest season. And so increasingly, shrimpers sort of have to navigate around this giant dead zone in order to catch a profitable amount of, of shrimp. 
And what happens is the shrimp who may be in the dead zone, they try to leave it. So that forces some shrimp to congregate around the edges of the dead zone, which actually makes it easier for shrimpers to catch them. But also, obviously, it it does affect reproduction of, of the shrimp. And so there's, you know, in some cases, there's been fewer shrimp to catch. So it presents big challenges for shrimpers and other types of fishermen, fisher people in the Gulf. And the fishing industry is a huge industry all along the Gulf, both for commercial production. It supplies a lot of the seafood for restaurants, including in you know New Orleans and all along, along the Gulf. And you know it's obviously important for the tourism industry. So the dead zone is really a problem for the Gulf Coast economy that relies on you know healthy ocean waters so that it can function. Right. So aside from the the economics of it, there's also sort of a, a cultural aspect to what's happening. Can you talk a little bit about the communities in these areas and what's happening there? Yeah. In the course of doing the research for this report, we talked to a lot of people on the ground who are affected by the dead zone, who are also affected by hurricanes. This area is, is, has multiple big issues it's, it's confronting. It's a diverse group of people who are shrimping on the Gulf Coast, who are, are fishing. And it ranges from indigenous communities who've lived along the shore for generations. And there are also immigrants, especially Vietnamese immigrants who fled Vietnam during the Vietnam War, who brought their fishing traditions with them to the U.S. And so there's a range of people who are living off the Gulf waters and and really need need it to be healthy (laughs) so that they can earn a livelihood, but also continue on with some of their cultural traditions. So in the report, you talk about the economic benefits of getting the dead zone under control. And the nitrogen is coming from farms in the Midwest. So the solutions are going to come from the Midwest, which is not the area that is experiencing the problems. How do we come up with solutions that will incentivize farmers in the Midwest to adopt better practices that will help the Gulf Coast? Yeah, that's a great question. And to bring in a little Econ 101, when a third party is impacted by a transaction occurring kind of somewhere else, economists call that an externality. So we have this big externality in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and as you say, that the solutions do come upstream. And so, you know, in our report, we've provided some policy recommendations to make it easier for farmers to adopt practices like cover crops, which I talked about earlier And, you know, those policies include one that was introduced last year called the Agricultural Resilience Act. And so this bill provides funding and resources for farmers to help them adopt these practices because it's it's hard to change as a farmer. You know, once you get into doing a thing that you've been doing for a long time, it's hard to shift it. And there's also costs associated with changing how you plant things and how you manage your farm. And so Bills like this are really geared toward making it, making shifts that will help keep nitrogen out of waterways, make it easier for farmers to do that. Do you get the sense that farmers want to adopt different practices? That's a great question. I I do think there's an appetite for this. One piece of evidence I can share is that there's a program called the Conservation Stewardship Program that USDA operates, and it helps farmers have this sort of whole farm approach to 
preserving natural resources like soil and, and water. And also it helps them to be more resilient to things like climate change. It helps them adopt practices that, that do that. And we've seen demand for that program far outstrips how much funding is available. So we think there is an appetite absolutely for this. And I think some of these practices that keep nitrogen on the farm, if it's used, these practices help farmers to be more resilient to climate change. You know, when there's a flood, if, if you have more organic matter, if you have roots in the soil, it's going to reduce soil erosion on your land and it's going to keep that soil on your farm so you can be productive long term and the soil will hold more water. So there's less damage to the farm in the case of like an extreme flood. So there's there's benefits for farmers, but, it, you know, there's there's also benefits for climate and for water quality for some of these practices that that can really reduce nitrogen losses from farms. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, your coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come on over and talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. I read in the report uh, summary that the solutions will actually save more money than they cost. So this seems like an economic win. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in our analysis, we looked at some recent estimates of how much it would cost for widespread adoption of these practices like cover cropping and prairie strip planting and, and a few others if we adopted those at a wide scale in the Midwest, how much would that cost? Because obviously it's going to cost some money. Again, farmers have to change the way they do what they're doing. And the costs of that, at least if, from a policy perspective, would be costs that the government would bear. So we'd be providing incentives or funding for farmers to do this. Um, so we compared those costs to the costs of reducing the damage that the nitrogen causes in the Gulf of Mexico. So we we estimated the impact from the nitrogen on marine habitat and fisheries uh, and fishing stocks in the Gulf. And we found that those benefits in some of our scenarios outweighed those costs that we would have to incur if we were to help farmers make these shifts. So we think, you know, getting new funding, getting farmers to adopt these new practices it is always a challenge. It has been a challenge for a really long time, but we know what we show in our report is there'd be a, a major return on investment in the Gulf if we were to move on these policy options that we have to increase adoption of these sustainable practices that are good for the climate, good for farmers. And I'll say that in addition to the benefits to the Gulf that we found that we identified in dollars, there's also benefits upstream um, that we didn't quantify. So we feel like the benefits that we calculated are sort of an underestimate of what the true economic benefits would be if we address this problem focused on the dead zone in the Gulf. 
We've talked about the problem of Midwest farms and the runoff going all the way down into the, the Gulf of Mexico, but have you focused at all on nitrogen runoff closer to home and what happens there? That is what I'm working on right now, actually. <laughs> I'm so glad that... Really? Yeah. So, you know, when we do UCS reports, we consult with researchers, you know, and we talked to a lot of people in the course of this report and, and many of them said, hey, you need to look at what's happening upstream because there's water quality issues all along the Mississippi River and near the farms where, you know, where this runoff and the nitrogen losses are happening. And so we thought it made sense to to do our next, you know, work in that area. So give me a, a sneak peek at what you're looking at and what some of the issues are that you're working on. Yeah, so we are, we're looking at Iowa because there's a lot of grain and corn production in Iowa and also a lot of livestock production. And so what we're looking at now is we're estimating how much nitrogen is used in both crop and livestock production in Iowa. And it's pretty astounding how many billions of pounds of nitrogen go into the system or the, you know, the agricultural system in, in Iowa. And I should say, it may not be clear where the nitrogen comes from, from animals. It comes from their waste. And so, you know, we're trying to quantify like how much, how much is going into the system, how much is entering the waterways, and then what impacts that has on the water quality in Iowa. You're looking at, so there's the nitrogen that's runoff from fertilizer, but there's also nitrogen associated with livestock? Yeah. So according to our, this is a draft estimate. I'll give you a sneak peek. In Iowa, there are more livestock animals than humans. And those livestock animals like beef cattle and, and hogs and chickens, they produce, you know, poop, waste. <laughs> and that actually contains a lot of nitrogen. So you know, just in our kind of preliminary estimates, um, you know, in, in one year in 2017, uh, there were 88 million animals just in Iowa producing 117 billion pounds of manure in one year. And then that manure has a lot of nitrogen in it, 999 million pounds. So that, that has to be stored somewhere. It has to be, um, something has to be done with it. And so, um, oftentimes, it's actually sprayed on land, on farmland, nearby farmland. And then the nitrogen can wash off into waterways, just like with fertilizer. So we've got a lot of, again, a lot of nitrogen from crop production and livestock going into the system in Iowa. And nitrogen very easily washes off farms and, and leaches into the soil, into groundwater. Um, and so you're talking about, so you're talking about this is leaching into water that what potentially becomes drinking water? Yes, yes, that is exactly right. So Iowa relies, like all of us, on groundwater and surface water sources for drinking water. So, so does, the does the nitrogen get filtered out? Yes. So there are public water systems all over Iowa that have to check for nitrates. Nitrates is what you would find in groundwater or surface water, you know, if it's contaminated from agriculture or livestock production. Um, so yeah, there, there's federal and state regulations that require monitoring for the nitrate levels. And if it gets to a certain level, you know, you have a problem for public health. And so there's a lot of money going into treating 
drinking water sources for nitrates. And I'll just stop there, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Because we don't want to give away too much yeah. before the report comes out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the only other thing I'll say is to connect it back to the Gulf. When drinking water systems are treated for nitrates, the nitrates are taken out. They're removed from the drinking water, but then they're put back into surface water and then they end up downstream anyways. Why would they put it back? It has to go somewhere. It, it ends up in surface waters and likely ends up in the in the Gulf of Mexico where we have this dead zone problem. So really, we have to get a handle on this. We, we have to use less of it. Yes. And the, a way to do that is some of these practices that we think are good for farmers, good for the climate, and, and good for soil. Cover cropping, like I said... Rebecca, if I were going to put you in charge of this whole large project to, um, you know, make our systems better, what is a timeline for actually making some of this stuff happen? It's not going to be quick, but could it be done in five years, 10 years, three years? Well, in the current political context, I think given the urgency of climate change, some of the things that we need to do need to happen in that five to 10 year period, even though that seems quick for having sort of wide scale shifts in how, how we grow corn and other crops in, in that part in the Midwest, in that part of the country. So I think it's sort of probably there's some things that can happen. We just have to make it happen. Sort of we need a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, we, if we're going <laughs> to, we need an ambitious goal and we need to be ambitious um, because of climate. So we, sh- we should be. So there are many upsides to adopting these better practices, which is really good news, right? Yes. We can, uh, we can do it. Yes, I, I think so. And as I said, there's appetite. Um, there's appetite for it among farmers. I think there are some challenges that farmers face that have to be confronted. And we need to talk honestly about those challenges. And also in the context of the farm economy and, and crop prices and how that impacts how farmers are are doing business. But I think there's a lot of, there's some win-win-win scenarios that we need to, we need to make possible through federal policy action. Excellent. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much. I'm, I'm glad to have a podcast where we can end on an upbeat note. That doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. a lot. Especially right now. Yeah, no, I, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm an optimist. So yeah, it was great, great to talk to you, Colleen. It's time now for a short segment by research analyst Anita Desikan. The barrage of bad news with the pandemic keeps coming. We recently passed a quarter of a million deaths in the U.S. alone from COVID-19. But there is good news with promising vaccines on the way, and the incoming Biden administration announced their plans to halt the spread of COVID-19. And it looks pretty solid. Here's Anita with the story. President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris didn't wait long to let us know that they have a plan for handling the pandemic. Just two days after the election was called, they announced the creation of a transition COVID-19 advisory board. It's made up entirely of doctors, scientists, and former government health officials, which is good news. Also good news is that it's clear the incoming administration is taking the pandemic seriously. Its plan literally promises to always, quote, listen to the science, unquote. The new advisory board is made up of 16 members, many of whom are women and people of color. Its three co-chairs are Marcela Nuez-Smith, a Yale physician and researcher, 
Vic Murthy, a U.S. Surgeon General from 2014 to 2017, and David Kessler, an FDA Commissioner from 1990 to 1997. Marcella Nuez-Smith has researched health disparities and discrimination in healthcare in marginalized populations, expertise that will be especially valuable now as COVID-19 disproportionately harms people of color. As for Vivek Murthy and David Kessler, they have worked closely with Biden throughout the duration of the pandemic, leading briefings since its earliest days. They both have stellar records, and as federal scientists, both are willing to advocate for science-based actions, even in the face of political pressure. As for the COVID-19 plan that these individuals and other transition officials are working on, it promises access to free, reliable testing, accelerated production and distribution of personal protective equipment, or PPE, evidence-based guidance for communities, treatments and vaccines that are distributed equitably, protections for people who are at high risk of developing severe COVID-19 symptoms, reconvened federal pandemic response teams, and mask mandates. Here are even more specifics. The incoming administration is planning to invoke the Defense Production Act to increase PPE supplies, to create a pandemic testing board to produce and distribute millions of tests, and to mobilize 100,000 people to perform community-focused contact tracing. Biden's team is also signaling that it will center racial equity in its pandemic response. One of their goals is to, quote, establish a COVID-19 racial and ethnic disparities task force to provide recommendations and oversight on disparities in public health and economic response, end quote. This team will transition to a permanent task force on racial equities in infectious diseases once COVID-19 is under control. Finally, the team is requesting that the CDC issue evidence-based guidance on how communities can navigate the pandemic. And they say they will take steps to ensure that the vaccine development at the FDA is non-political and led by scientists. So they're going to let science-based federal agencies do their jobs without political interference. That is good. And that is the way things are supposed to be. Currently, the U.S. is facing one of the darkest chapters of the pandemic. Daily case numbers are repeatedly spiking to the highest numbers we've observed. Daily death totals are at the highest levels seen since May. And COVID-19 hospitalizations are so high that many hospitals, especially in the Midwest and the West, are reaching their capacity to provide care. We in the United States are in desperate need of an administration willing and able to use science-based tools to slow the spread of this deadly pandemic. With the announcement of this advisory board and the steps the transition team is already taking on its plan, we now have a better chance of coordinating an aggressive science-based response against the greatest public health crisis seen in a century. My colleagues and I are grateful for the return to science and public health, since the only way we are going to make any real progress in slowing and halting the spread of COVID-19 is with a science and public health-based approach. And we are ready to hold the Biden administration accountable for managing this crisis 
and protecting our health. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Rebecca Baim. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, stay safe, wear your masks, and see you next time.